Welcome to Story Therapy, a Mythos miniseries exploring the relationship between narrative and mental health, particularly traditional tales as a therapeutic space where difficult emotions and circumstances can be acknowledged and explored. In this series, experts, mental health practitioners, and storytellers will share stories from folklore, myth, and legend, and we will explore to what extent such tales provide space for delving into what it means to be human, delving into what drives us and what challenges us. Enjoy the stories and join the discussion by following Mythos Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And again, I welcome you to Story Therapy, and I hope it is thought-provoking, comforting, and gives you tools for confronting difficult issues. Hello, everyone. Today I have Lily Ash, the director of Real Talk, a social enterprise dedicated to storytelling for mental well being. And she is going to start us off with a story. Great. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm excited so, about the story. <laughs> <laughs> As am I. So, once upon a time, There were two twins that lived in the world. They were the only humans that lived in the world, in fact. And their names were Yama and Yami. Now, Yama and Yami, they got to enjoy this world that they had just to themselves. They'd wander around and feel the grass on their feet. They'd see the blue sky above them and they'd hear the rustle of leaves in the trees. And they just enjoyed. See, where they lived, it was always day, and it was always spring. The sun was always shining. In fact, the moon was there, but it was so hidden by that bright light of the sun that it was never able to be shown. And in this place that they lived, time was standing still. So there wasn't a yesterday, and there wasn't a tomorrow. Imagine that, always sunny, always spring, time standing still. So the the grass, it was always growing green and lush, and there were always big ripe fruits hanging from the tree, and there was always honey overflowing from the beehives. And in this eternally peaceful place, Yama and Yami, they floated around like two little stars. Two twin stars. Now one day, Yami had gone on a walk, and she'd went on a walk on her own. And when she came back to where her brother was resting, she saw him lying underneath a tree. She went up and she whispered his name. But Yama didn't answer. So she said it a bit louder this time. And then she took him by the shoulders and she gently shook him. But he didn't respond. Still. And that's when she noticed that his chest, it wasn't rising or falling. There was no breath entering or exiting, and that his body had gone cold and still. In that moment, Yami realized that she was now completely alone. Her brother Yama had died. And sorrow 
It welled up within Yami's body. It was like an ocean, its depths unfathomable. It filled her and it started to pour out from her heart. And it left to her eyes as tears. And these tears flowed like rivers and they threatened to start flooding the land that was around her. See, her heart was so full of grief that it let off this heat. And her sobs, they shook the sky and they shook the earth. And there was nothing that could stop it. And this flood of her tears, well, the gods and goddesses of the elements who created the world, they were starting to become afraid because they saw that their beautiful creation, all of the creatures and all of the land, it was going to be destroyed by Yami's grief. And so they put their heads together. They started to talk. They said, we need to go down. We need to see what we can do to help Yami. And so they took physical form and they went down to comfort her. They rubbed her back and they sang her songs and they tried to tell her that she should have hope that yes, death might be inevitable, but there were still things to look forward to. But in her sorrow, Yami, she couldn't hear them. She just kept repeating, Yama died today. Yama has died today. The gods and goddesses were a bit distressed now. So they went to sit on a hill together. They took a deep breath. And they thought. And suddenly, it occurred to them that in this land that was always day, Yami's sorrow would just carry on forever. That it had no end to it. There was no tomorrow and there was no yesterday. It would just carry on. And that's when they realized that they needed there to be tomorrow. That they needed there to be night. And so the gods and the goddesses, they gathered up their power of creation. And they began to make that first night. It was the sunset first, pink and orange on the horizon. And then there was the fall of the blanket of dusk, blue and heavy. And there were stars now, twinkling in the sky and a crescent moon. And a quiet hush covered the earth for the first time. And so under this blanket of night, Yami and all the creatures of the world he went to sleep for the very first time. And the next day, the sun rose from the east, bright and strong, and Yami woke up. She yawned, she stretched, and she paused. She thought of her brother. She said, oh, Yama, he died yesterday. And so it was the next day when she got up and she yawned and she stretched and she thought of her brother. She said, Yama, he died the day before yesterday. And so it was that the gentle cover of night helped to kind of dull her grief. That day and day passed. And that Yami was able to remember her brother, of course. But the heat 
of her sorrow, it wasn't so much. And the tears that she had been crying started to come less frequently. And then the gods and goddesses realized they didn't have to be afraid anymore that Yami's grief would destroy the whole world. Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely stunning. You know, of course, at the beginning when you were saying, um, imagine a, a timeless world, and I thought, well, <laughs> I think I'm kind of getting a feeling for that <laughs> these <Yeah>. days. <laughs> Just suspended in our rooms, floating around. <laughs> um, but this, I'll have you talk in a minute more about the background of the story, etc. Mm-hmm. But that image of grief being so vast and unmanageable, that it's a flood, that it's an ocean, is I think precisely what grief is like, isn't it? It doesn't feel like something that can be assuaged. Mm. Um, it feels cataclysmic was the thought that I had. That is absolutely beautiful. Um, but if you want to talk a little bit about where the story comes from, but also why is the story meaningful to you? Um, and what aspect of the human experience for you does it speak to? Mm. Yeah, sure. So this story was actually given to me by a mentor of mine. And it's a Hindu story. And it's a part of a sort of series of this creation myths and stories there. And I think for me, it really it speaks to, I guess, a fundamental experience of, of being a human which is to experience loss. I think it, for me, it they kind of go hand in hand and it might be slightly, um, I don't know, cliche that, you know, you can't know the dark without the light, but in many ways, part of being human is, is recognizing our sort of our mortality. Mm-hmm. And so the story really spoke to me because it's obviously quite a clear depiction of, of grief, but then it's also sort of tied to the sense that, it also helped to create the night and helped to create something that allows us to kind of move forward through time. And that created a sort of dynamicism mm. in this previously quite maybe static place of, of just kind of perpetual floating. And, um, <laughs> which I think it sounds, you know, initially it sounds like, Oh, that'd be great. Wouldn't it? But I imagine if you actually inhabited that space, eventually it, it would feel maybe a bit, I don't know, kind of stale or, Ooh, a bit, yeah, nebulous. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think there was something in, in the story as well that really s- struck me and spoke to me, which is the sense of the kind of oceanic depth of emotion that we can experience sometimes. Um, obviously, in this case, it was it was grief and it was sorrow. And um, you know, I have a particular interest in, in mental health and for me, that just kind of spoke to how intensely we can feel things in this world and how, for me, important it is that we're able to do that mm-hmm. um, and to hold space for that. Um, but then also how we can then work on on managing and expressing and, and making sense of that because it can be a huge thing to hold if we have this big uncharted depth um, and in what ways can we start to bring light to it and and to kind of spread it more evenly so it's not weighing down on us 
That's, I mean, you said um, a minute ago that um, when you mentioned the darkness and the light, that it can, things like that can feel cliche. Mm. Um, But it occurs to me that the interesting and I think really humbling thing about traditional stories is that things that can seem cliche, um, you realize are actually, it's timeless wisdom. Mm. And they tend to only feel cliche because you've somehow lost touch with the reality of that wisdom, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that to me is really beautiful that the story can take me back to, again, that these kinds of timeless wisdom and, and the, you know, it's just simply the fact that really overwhelming emotional states are so all encompassing, as you, as you said, that you feel like you are, in the metaphorical sense, going to drown in it. There's no way out of, you know, of that reality. And, you know, some months ago, I, I went through an absolutely debilitative um, depression. I mean, I, I couldn't move. And, you know, that metaphor of, I suppose, almost being underwater, um, of being afloat on a massive ocean is, um, Ooh, I'm getting kind of intensely emotional here. <laughs> um, is it, you, it's funny how now I can't experience the emotion if that now that I'm beyond it, I can't necessarily touch that emotion mm-hmm. the way that I felt it then, but I can taste it again through that story. And the thing that it does for me now that I'm, you know, I've I've really healed from that time and. Um, you know, and I'm experiencing such, you know, joy and wholeness in my life at this stage. Mm. What it reminds me of is how grateful I am for the people who supported me. Like in the stories, the other gods and goddesses had to come together, didn't they? Um, right. And help with the situation because, um, you know, poor Yumi, she couldn't, there was no way that on her own that could be sorted that can be managed. Um, and it just makes me think back with incredible gratitude to all the people in my life that supported me, you know, whether that's to be honest, the NHS, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, my doctors, my, my the school that I taught at, at the time, um, my husband, my, my close friends, I remember my friends, Eva and Murad, I mean, I could tell them the worst of it. And it almost seems like the the gods and goddesses that story for me represent the that compassion, mm. you know, and and even just the practical support that I got during that time. So that that's amazing. And I, what I'm amazed by is for me this mini series is about looking at stories as potentially therapeutic spaces. And um, you know, I've explored this a little bit before, but listening to your story and now responding to it. Uh, I am amazed (laughs) by the power of this, which is interesting because, you know, obviously you are the director of this social enterprise, Real Talk, Mm -hmm. um, that gives people the opportunity to do actually what we've just done here for you to tell the story, to talk about uh, it's the depth of its meaning. And even for me to respond to that as well. Mm. Um, So if, you know, we're kind of using myth, folklore and legend really as, I suppose, an emotional platform 
Um, can you talk a bit about your online workshop, Gathering in Grief, which I think it launches this Thursday. Is that correct? That's the 30th of April? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> um, thanks, Nicole. I guess just to take a moment to say thanks for, for sharing that, a bit of your experience with me and I think just totally resonating with that sense that the story can be such a powerful container for us to overlay our own emotional journey and experience on it because I think sometimes it's so powerful to have a bit of of distance in order to really connect mm -hmm. into something um so just really really resonating with that and and yeah as you as you mentioned with real talk so it's it's interesting real talk has a sort of twofold element um the first is actually using traditional storytelling tools so more applied storytelling to help people share their own personal stories and sometimes that takes the sort of shape of a more mythic or story or, or fairy tale but sometimes it also takes a shape shape of a quite sort of literal and personal story and just recognizing as I have across the work how powerful it is to put something into a story so that when others listen to it they're able to do that exact thing we just talk about which is to map themselves into it to kind of cultivate empathy and to really go on an emotional journey that someone might not have gone on before or conceptualize in exactly that way and that I firmly believe is a profoundly healing thing because I think there's this sort of really fundamental challenge we have as humans is, is trying to get our internal experience known and and witnessed by others when sometimes it feels like it's very hard for it to fully get out and be oh wow that's taken. a really good way to describe it yeah um so that feels quite quite special that that part of the work and and more and more recently as well there's this space of taking traditional story and just again I guess I've already, I've already sort of said it and spoken to it, but that, that power that that story can have. And I was reading actually an article by NPR and it was looking more into the sort of neurological, biological basis of what stories and listening to stories does for us. And it was a variety of things, things like you're able to take the perspective of someone else. So you're able to either get into the mindset of a character um, and then actually maybe challenge your own worldview or kind of go on a journey you might not as an individual normally think of yourself going on. And then through connecting with the story, you're able to kind of be transported. You're taken somewhere else. You're able to use your imagination and engage. And I think then the crazy thing is physiologically what happens is this intense sort of mirroring that neurally your sort of brain waves will start to match up with a storyteller if you're really, you know, hooked in and, and paying attention. And then that has this beautiful sort of impact on how you're able to perceive the story and how you feel. And yeah, I think kind of emotional movement is such, um, such an important experience for us as humans because I really believe we're deeply emotional beings. I know personally I'm a deeply emotional oh, person. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, when I'm not able to go into those spaces where I'm moving along that, that emotional sort of, Mm, sort of space or sort of spectrum then I, I actually feel a bit a bit hindered so I think stories really open that up in a way that's non-threatening because sometimes to sit down and say hey this is what happens when you're experiencing depression and here's the darkness and depth and the, the statistics of it it doesn't give the same permission for people to make their own meaning of it and to connect with it in a way that feels feels right for them um 
And so, yeah, I think story has that magical, magical power. Oh, that's excellent. You know, it makes me think too that um, I don't remember where I was reading it, but it talked a bit about um, Joseph Campbell talking about kind of myths and narratives that are dysfunctional, Mm. um, which is a really interesting counterpoint, isn't it? That um, yeah, some stories in this, we won't obviously go into that in too much detail, but can encourage, um, you know, things like xenophobia and, um, you know, feelings of superiority. And it seems like it's also really important work to be putting out stories that, uh, I suppose, do the opposite, that help us face those darker aspects of ourselves um, and see alternatives as well. Um, that, you know, it makes me think, I, in some ways I had, when I went through my depression, I felt like I had zero will. Well, I pretty much had zero will and zero agency. Mm. Um, But the one thing I remember telling myself, okay, the one thing you can do is accept help. Um, And your story reminds me of that important lesson in my life, Mm. you know, accepting help and trusting because well, you know, I could have done the opposite and it could have been, I think, in many ways, much worse for me. Um, so that, that to me is fascinating as well. But I suppose, you know, I, you're doing an important work, Lily. <laughs> Not that I want to, um, you know, burden you too much, you know, no pressure, but what you're doing is also, you know, I, I guess putting out narratives that are healing. Um, I think perhaps rather than propping up our shadows. Yeah. <laughs> you know what uh, I mean? And being unaware of them. So yeah. that makes me think of well, so many things. Um, I think the first just connecting with what you said around having agency over your own story, particularly in, in mental health treatment. So I mean I have my own lived experience of mental illness and was hospitalized when when I was a teenager. And I think part of my motivation for setting up real talk was recognizing how important the claiming of that agency in my own story was and particularly mm-hmm. the way that I articulated my own story. Cause I think there's understandably quite a specific sort of set of words you use in clinical treatment. Um, that as just a, an everyday person, I wouldn't use to speak about myself. Um, you know, I wouldn't be like, Oh, I'm experiencing a manic episode. Um, but then <laughs> right. that would be the language I'd have to use in order to get support and to get treatment. Um, which is totally understandable obviously these are the systems we've built but then for me it was very that that healing sense was actually giving words and language to it that felt like they were my own so that was so liberating for me but then I think for other people to listen to it made it more relatable and it wasn't the sort of set of words that you use only if you're you know over there having treatment it was actually I'm using just the language we use every day and this is then the emotion and the experience and and the depth of it um but then as well with traditional story thinking of the sort of the responsibility of, of the storyteller of the stories that we choose to continue to bring forward. And in what ways, I mean, it's obviously a big debate within storytelling communities. How much should we, and are we allowed to adapt and alter stories? And I think personally, it feels like there's a thing in selection of choosing stories that, that carry, um, you know, more fit for purpose or fit for the day, experiences and, and, and plot points and maybe morals, but 
also how are we able to play with that a little bit so if we are still telling stories that should be told and are culturally relevant but maybe have things that we kind of want to challenge a bit more what is the purpose of us telling this story and how do we bring that challenge in while still respecting the tradition um, so I think it's a, it's a huge and complex topic to to face because yeah sometimes we need to be rewriting our stories personally but then also what does that mean for our societal stories at what point do those need to be rewritten yeah that's it's an interesting debate isn't it it's something i've certainly encountered with with mythos and a lot of the research and too because the podcast itself is aimed at, at retelling the stories um in such a way that a you know a modern audience can connect um and you know there are times where i i have to admit i encounter things that are deeply offensive to my sensibility <laughs> mm. as you do, you know, in traditional tales yeah. and it is a fine balance. Um, and I can't say that I probably get it right all of the time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's almost as if there's a dual purpose. And I suppose I always have to think about what my purpose is. You know, am I, um, I remember talking to you before and you used the, the term, uh, a tradition bearer. Um, and, you know, to what extent am I, I guess, kind of continuing a tradition? If that's the case, I want to stick to the story to, you know, as, as much as I can. But also to what extent am I bringing this alive for a new age? And if that's the mm-hmm. case, then there's probably things I need to add because it's going to be incomprehensible, you know, or some things are just too offensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That I've encountered in folklore. Um, and it's just not, you know, it, and in some ways it's just not pertinent. But then again, if I'm speaking to a certain thing, like the human capacity to be afraid of the other, mm. then it might be that in a certain circumstance, that offensive material would be included to face that, you know, in human culture, if that makes sense. It's a tough mm. one, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and I think there's a kind of, then a kind of paradox within storytelling and it, because it started off as an oral tradition. And then what we've done at a certain point, totally understandably, is captured it on paper. And we've, you know, sort of, sometimes almost feels like petrified it for very good reason, because then we're able to preserve it and to carry it on. But I think you spoke to it where it then part of then bringing it back to life does have a sort of sense of making it, you know, kind of real for the time now. And so, yeah, it's just a very a very challenging balance um, to strike because I mean, what if, what if stories had never been put down on paper and they'd only carried on through the oral tradition? I mean, would they have changed more perhaps, or I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I do want to go back to, um, I suppose the idea of grief mm. um, and then we'll talk about your workshop a, a, a bit. So, I remember, you know, seeing on social media, and I think you probably have seen, but there was an article going around called um, What You're Feeling is Grief. I don't remember where it came from. I don't know if you remember yeah, it was you know, where it came from and if you could summarize. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, the article was in the Harvard Business Review, and it was an interview with uh, David Kessler, who's a kind of leading grief expert from the US. And he was essentially speaking about this time that we're in of sort of global health crisis and pandemic 
and then connecting some of the feelings that we might be experiencing into the experience of grief. And he spoke about it on a few levels. I mean, of course, there's the very sort of real experience of, of bereavement and that loss. And then there were sort of other layers that he put on that, which was the sort of loss of future plans and the loss of clarity as to where we're going to be going in the world and the sort of anticipatory grief of like what's going to unfold and sort of just talking about how we've had a a fundamental shift in how we experience the world. And within that, we're having this response of that's, that's like grieving because we've lost something pretty profound and that's actually quite a big thing to hold. Um, And yeah, I really enjoyed finding this article or, don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I found it really thought-provoking because I think initially, particularly here in the UK, the response was sort of totally understandably like, great, how do we band together and how do we kind of just bounce back and carry on and learn new skills and take this time to, you know, be positive about things. Um, but I think there's, again, it's that balance thing of how do we temper that because we also have to recognize then there are some really deep and challenging emotions of being angry and afraid and overwhelmed by deep uncertainty. And so, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also, um, and, and understandably, that sometimes when we have to face, um, you know, I suppose kind of collective uncertainty and grief, for, in terms of, you know, people who probably ha- have been affected much more deeply, you know, perhaps than let's say I have, um, how uncomfortable it can be to face the grief of others as well, because, well, let's go back to your story. It's so overwhelming. I mean, what do you do? I think that's in, in, in the face of this overwhelming flood of consequence um, in terms of what's happening. So that's, I mean, it's such a challenge and, you know, kudos <laughs> to you, Lily, for actually, you know, attempting a little something to, I, I suppose, help, help us face what in many ways is kind of like that collective grief, I guess, as you were, as you were saying. Um, and it's, so on Thursday is this online workshop, Gathering in Grief. So it's 30th of April. I think you said tomorrow or I'm sorry, the 29th of April. So that's going to be the last day that you can sign up. Mm. All right. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I will definitely be doing it. (laughs) There is no doubt. Um, And yeah, I'd like for the audience to hear a bit more about how that's going to proceed. And of course, they've already had a bit of a taster with this episode. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, So yeah, the Gathering Grief series, I think it's funny because we mentioned that article and that was a big um, inspiration for me. And I suppose, um, (laughs) sorry, one second. (laughs) My eyes just walked in, I found it very distracting. (laughs) It happens. I I, I have my own room with a door that I can shut. and climbed on a chair. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So gathering in grief, I think was born for me out of really finding spaces where we can come together to acknowledge challenges and kind of the depth of our emotions, the range of our emotions and finding how healing those could be. And I guess I just wanted to, 
to try to do something because it feels like it's just so so big and I've noticed in myself this really interesting journey I've gone through where just I mean a huge range of emotions and of course then this time there's a sort of grieving of like a lot of the possibilities and and the future plans that have all kind of been laid to waste but actually in this sort of space that's come up um there feels like there's a lot of reflecting back and sort of all these other things that have been sort of resting beneath the surface that have started to to unveil themselves and I guess for me the the beauty and the power of traditional stories, which you know we've spent a long time speaking about, was just how can I hold space to kind of share some some stories that will speak to the various themes of grief and allow a small group of us to have conversations and unpack that and reflect on our own experiences. And I guess the sort of belief that I have that in in recognizing and honoring those emotions that we're then, I think, allowing them to flow through us more and and I think that's quite a healing thing so the set uh the workshop is just going to be six weeks each week will be a different theme of grief um and a different traditional story that I'll bring and share and then holding space for this small group to to unpack that and to bring some of their own experience if they'd like or just to reflect on the the imagery and I think part of the experience will be created by the group itself and and allowing a bit of that flexibility but then giving the structure and the frame to encourage and and keep those conversations safe so that's excellent so well I have to say I am after this episode I'm excited about participating (laughs) because that story just it it opens you up and I am definitely looking forward to that experience Um, can you give some information about where to find um, tickets for the workshop Um, yeah and where people can find out more yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, I'm really excited for it too. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess the best place to go would be Real Talk's website, which is www.realtalkproject.org slash gathering and grief. And there there'll be a little write up of what to expect, um, kind of recapping what I've said, giving the logistical bits. And then there's also a ticket link and the tickets are going to be through brown paper tickets. So might be a way you could find it through there, but probably the easiest is just going to the website and you'll find all the information captured there. Excellent. Um, and I'll also have the, for anyone who's interested, I'll have the link for the website um, and the location of where to buy tickets on mythos podcast um, Facebook page. So it will be there. Um, if you know me personally, it'll be on my personal Facebook page as well. I'll put it up on Twitter. So, um, you'll be able to find it easily. So Lily, thank you so much, um, for joining us. And again, you're doing important work and, you know, hopefully we can do maybe a few future episodes exploring some more stories because I just found this fascinating and emotionally fulfilling. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It's such a pleasure and I would love to be able to share and speak with you in the future.